0: The work that you say you're going to do, make it so. God, if if this is not the time, if if there's more that you want to do, Lord, if there is more patience that you want to show to this world that so clearly is in rebellion, more patience so that there is more time for more repentance, God, give us the same kind of endurance, the same kind of patience, and the same kind of heart, eyes to see. Maybe there's more. Maybe there's more, God, that you can bring in to enjoy that kingdom, that coming kingdom. God, we pray that we would see that take place in our time. Lord, if we're going to need to live through more uh, days of physical pain, more days of spiritual uh, suffering, opposition, even political oppression, persecution, God, would you give us the strength to... some spectacular promises, assurances that we have from the end of Romans 8, where we left off a couple of weeks ago in our series. These words give us comfort and hope, especially when you are suffering, especially in a world of chaos and confusion and confrontation. But the stronger the promise of God's love and the greater the, cert- the absolute certainty of future glory the more questions may come to mind for us. Questions like, well, what about all those who are not saved, who are not secure in Christ's love? And if God guarantees our salvation, if nothing can thwart his purpose, are we just being swept along by God's sovereign will? If, if God's in control and not all are saved, what kind of God is he? That's pretty deep stuff. And that's where Paul goes in Romans 9. That's where we're at this morning. hope you'll join me there. Um, it would be really important for you to have your Bible open, the Bible that's in the pew rack there, because we're, we're pressing in to, the, to the, the words here this morning. Um, and, and just going to need to buckle up, because this is one of the hardest uh, passages in a very challenging letter. And I'm taking a larger section today, Uh, To try to get more of the bigger picture, to get the 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 view of the whole, and I know that means I'm not going to be able to cover all the issues. So I'm already planning, and I'm letting you know ahead of of time that I plan to do a follow up to this uh, on the the topics on this chapter uh, in next Sunday morning's Sunday school class in the fellowship hall. So I don't mean to take anybody else from your regular Sunday school class, but if you have questions and you're and you know, write them down uh, give them to me on the way out, send me an email, give me a call. The, the, the the sooner I get the questions, the better answers that that I'll be able to give you. So I'll be able to prepare a little bit more to give more thought to that. So, um, we'll, we'll do some of that next Sunday morning in the fellowship hall Sunday school class. But here's the thing. Even Paul does not answer all the questions in this passage. Every time he answers one question, it raises another, and at some point, he doesn't even try to give an answer, which is why I'm summarizing the message this way. You won't get answers to all your questions about God. Simply behold his glory and bask in his mercy. And I think I can show you from this text that that's that's really the, the thrust of this, uh, we won't get answers to all your questions. There's, there's good, it's good to ask questions, and there are answers to our questions, but we're not going to get all the answers to all our questions about God and His ways, how He works, what He's doing with this world. And at some point, we've we got to do what He says he's, He wants us to do. Behold His glory, bask in His mercy. Let's find this here in Romans chapter 9. I'm just going to begin by reading the first uh, first paragraph and into the the second. So, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 6. So, please follow along. Romans chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen." But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Now, that little turn there. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. What that tells us is the concern of verses 1 through 5 could lead you to ask this question. Here's part 1 of the outline. Is, is God unfaithful? Is God keeping His promises? Is his, is his Word being carried out in the world? The answer, of course, is no. But here's the takeaway for this first part that I want us to get. God's overarching plan should make you no less concerned for the the lost. God's overarching plan should make you no less concerned for the lost. Before we get to that takeaway, we have to feel the force of the question. One minute, end of chapter 8, and again, Paul's not writing with chapter 8. Okay, finish that. Now chapter 9, completely different topic. He's running through. One minute, end of chapter 8, we're soaring on the promises of God, and then, okay, but but what about the promises that he hasn't seemed to keep? All those promises to Israel. Paul, way back at the beginning of of this letter, you said you were all about the good news of Jesus Christ, good news of God's salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek or Gentile. But all along, you seem to be denigrating your fellow Jews. Chapters 2 and 3, Jews are sinners just like everyone else. Chapters 4 and 5, Jews are justified by faith like everyone else. The law that God gave through Moses brings condemnation. Uh, and then in chapters 6 through 8, you say the, the fulfillment of the covenants with Israel, things like adoption as sons so that, that we become heirs with uh, of God and, and the promise of new life through the Holy Spirit, that promise given to Jews is now fulfilled in both Jew and Gentile believers through union with Christ? Okay, but what about all those Israelites who don't believe in Christ? What's up with God's promises if so many Jews are apart from Christ and apart from Christ are not saved? Now, All those promises are nothing without that. This is why, and, and, and I think that understanding of what he just said is borne out what he says. Verse 2, Paul has, I'm telling you the truth, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It's why he says at the beginning of chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. They're not saved apart from Christ. Christ. It's why he has to explain and then defend the faithfulness of God, that God's Word, His promises, His blessings, His covenants have not failed, even though they seem not to be coming to fruition. Now, before we turn to his explanation of how God has not been faithful, we need to appreciate the passion here that Paul is feeling. This is not a dorm room debate of abstract theology, a flippant discussion of people's eternal destinies. For Paul, these are his people, at least according to the flesh, he says. Even if they aren't brothers spiritually, brothers in Christ, they are his people. This is his heritage, and God had made promises to them, had been at work among them for for generations, for centuries, so that Paul, get this, who who has just said, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, now says, moments later, I could wish that I were cut off from Christ if I could just see my kinsmen saved. I wonder if you remember a similar moment in, in biblical history, a moment that Paul has already alluded to earlier in this letter when, uh, when Israel had exchanged the glory of God, the, the glory of the immortal God, for an image of a golden calf. Uh, the story in Exodus 32. At the end of that chapter, Moses, Exodus 32, uh, Moses asks God to forgive the people's sin, and he, or, and he says, or else, God, if you can't forgive them, then you might as well kill me too. You might as well blot out my name from your book. Now, I wonder, I, I know this is true of some, of some of you who are here this morning. Do you, do you have some lost people in your life that you love so much that you would you'd give your life that they'd be saved. If you could, you can't. You, you can't do that. But if you could, you'd, you'd sacrifice yourself. And and then turning that little corner, you might be tempted to think, God, if you're not doing anything, do do, do I care more about them than you do? Do I do I care about? This person more than God does? Is my love, my compassion, my mercy greater than God's? He's ready to throw them into hell. I'm ready to do whatever it takes. But hold on. Think, think, think about it. Moses said he didn't want to live if his people's lives were lost. Paul said he was willing to give his life, if it were possible, to save his people. They didn't, they couldn't give their lives to save their people, you know where this is going. But God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Jesus Christ did give his life, did in some sense endure all of God's wrath on the cross, the wrath of hell itself, that he might save all who call on his name, all who trust in him, And in the discussion that follows in the rest of of Romans 9 here, you may start to wonder if, if God cares, if God is doing enough. I care. I would do more. Ho, 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 ho. Remember what he's already done? Remember how he's working all things for good? And remember, whatever else we say about God's plan and God's purpose and all the ways it might not look like he's following through on his promises in the moment, that doesn't make us Again, sticking with Paul's passion here in the moment, that doesn't make us casually write people off. God's overarching plan should make you no less concerned for the lost. Let's do anything we can to see them come to saving faith when God has already made the greatest sacrifice. That's part one. Now, let's read, let me read verses 6 through the end of that paragraph and on into the next through the beginning of 14. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah, Abraham's wife, shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is part 2. Is God unfair? And the takeaway, although we're going to have to work to get there, God choosing you as his child should make you humble and grateful. Now, I know, that, that, that line, Esau I have hated, is like a chicken bone stuck in your throat right now. Like, what? I can't get past that to anything else. But let, let's try to listen carefully, work our way through this paragraph. Paul, Paul has already told us in this letter that mere ethnic identity as a Jew, physical descent from Abraham, is not enough to save anyone. So I'm going to turn back just a moment. Uh, you can listen or turn with me back to the end of chapter 2. And verse uh, 28 there, 228, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision, the sign of the covenant, outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, that is the law. His praise is not from man, but from God then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Okay, so Paul is saying, just because some Jews didn't respond in faith does not mean God was unfaithful in keeping His promises. And so, okay, we can... Uh, That makes sense to us. It might be a little easier to swallow than what we have here in chapter 9. We might be able to accept the idea that, well, people freely chose not to follow God, but this in chapter 9 seems to say God chose who would be His, effectively excluding the others. And we think, hey, 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 that's not fair. That's not, that's not right. And the very fact that Paul anticipates this objection I think, means we're not misreading him. By answering one question, is God unfaithful? Is he keeping his word? No, he's not unfaithful. He's keeping his word. But he raises now another question for us. He answers one and raises another. Is God unfair? And Paul starts by reminding us what we could have read for ourselves in Genesis. Abraham had more than one son. God said uh, that Isaac, not Ishmael, would be the heir, the recipient of all the blessings, of all the promises. And you might think, oh, well, I, I know why that's the case, because uh, Ishmael was born of an Egyptian mother. And, and it was in a situation where Abraham was not trusting God. And so that's why it didn't go through Ishmael, it went through Isaac. Isaac was God's plan through Sarah, his wife, when Abraham trusted the promise. True, but not the whole picture, which is why he goes on to the next part. Take the example of Isaac's twin boys. Same father, same mother, And God, before they were born, before they did anything that we could point to to say that, oh, that guy deserves God's favor, or or this guy disqualified himself from God's favor, God was working out his plan through Jacob and not Esau. So verse 11 again, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue his choosing, not because of works, the works of Jacob or Esau, but because of him, God, who calls, she was told, the elder will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. And that that last line about love and hate is not from Genesis. It's actually the other end of the Old Testament, the last prophet, Malachi, uh, the last book in what we have as the Old Testament. And there, God was not referring to individuals, to men, Jacob and Esau, brothers but he's referring to uh, peoples, their, their descendants, the descendants of Jacob as a whole and the descendants of Esau as a whole. And he's not using the word hate like we use it when we talk about hate crimes or uh, crimes that, that are motivated by just animosity due to race or something else. Um, he's saying, and you can, you can read the beginning of Malachi to see this. He's saying, Israel... The, the, the descendants of Jacob, God's people, Israel, I have shown you, I've consistently shown you favor and blessing. Jacob, I have loved. The descendants of Esau or the nation of Edom, maybe you remember that from the Old Testament. The, the, there I have I've consistently opposed Edom, the nation of Esau. That's what he means by love and hate in, in that context. And even though we could say that God's negative attitude toward Esau, toward Edom, was consistent with their negative attitude toward God, it's clear that there's more going on than just back and forth of sin and consequences. There's more going on behind the scenes. God's plan and God's that goes all the way back to God's purposes, His plan before they had done anything good or bad. Now, before we go on to all the ways that that makes us feel uncomfortable, raises questions about God's character... Don't, don't miss, don't miss the positive side to what I've just described. It's not going to answer all your questions, but we do need to see the good here. The good in God loving, in God blessing, in God showing favor apart from anything that we do. Do, do you understand that? And what, what do we call God showing love, blessing, favor to us? apart from anything that we do. It's grace. It's mercy. It's grace. That's that's what we're dealing with here. That is significant to what we're seeing. Now, Jacob, understand, Jacob did not earn God's favor. It came before he had done anything. And frankly, when he started doing things, even while he was coming out of the womb, just go ahead, read Genesis so you can see this. I mean, as he, when he started doing things, Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a liar and a cheat, like you and me. If God has chosen to love you, chosen to bless you, chosen to favor you, it is not, it is not, not, not because you are bigger, Better, stronger, smarter, cuter than anybody else. It's not based on, in one sense, on you. This is what Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8 says, the Lord speaking to his people. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Moses says, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So I don't know if you followed that. You can look at it later. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. God God loved them. Why did he love them? It wasn't anything in them. He loved them because he loved them. He loved them because he decided to love them. He chose to love them. He made a promise and he's keeping the promise to Love them. He loves, we could say this, He loves you in spite of who you are and what you've done. He loves you because of who He is, not because of who you are. And that means, if you are in Christ, nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing that anybody does to you, nothing that you do, you're weaknesses your mistakes your failures you're continuing to stumble and fall nothing when is every time you turn back to him doesn't mean you you can doesn't mean you can just go on sinning so that grace may abound we've already covered that but every time you say oh i i can't do this again i've got to stop lord would you oh surely he won't forgive me this time yes yes I can't. can't, can't, After what I've done, I can't come back to him now. Yes, you can come back to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us, uh, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can come to him because ultimately his love depends on him, not depends. It does not depend on you. There should be, and so there should be, no such thing as an arrogant, entitled, self-absorbed Christian. It's not about you. Your position in life, your place in eternity is not about you. It's about him. There should be no such thing as an arrogant, entitled, self-absorbed Christian. God choosing you as his child should make you humble and grateful and joyful, and we should go on from there. And now I know. We still have questions. Okay, okay, that's, that's, all, that's all nice, but... Uh... Even if God has not failed to keep his promises to Israel, even, but, but then we say he chooses some and not others, we're left wondering, is God unfair? Is he unjust? Well, I'll just go ahead and warn you. Paul's answer may not seem like an answer as we go forward. Read with me. Listen as I read verse 14 and following. What shall we say then? So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, oh, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? We'll stop there. This is part three. Is God unjust? Pretty much the same as before un- unfair, unjust, unrighteous. We could translate that word as well. Is God unjust? Here's the takeaway. God puts evil in its place so that you might stand in awe of him. And I'll I'll get there. We'll we'll show that from the text here. But but in this paragraph, verse 14 and following, there are two quotations uh, from the Old Testament, both from Exodus. And in fact, the first is from Exodus 33, right after the chapter where where, uh, he had said, if you can't, forgive, if you won't forgive this people of their gross idolatry uh, at the golden calf, then just kill me too. Take me out. Take me out of the the book of life. Um, right after that chapter, Moses says uh, Exodus thirty three, verses eighteen and nineteen. Moses said, "Please show me your glory." And he, God said, "I will make all my goodness." pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Some of you may know the, the, the Hebrew Yahweh. That's, that's my name, Yahweh, which is loosely translated as, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, which seems to connect what he says next in Exodus 33. He says, so I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I am who I am. I will be who I will be, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and i will show mercy on whom i will show mercy so i don't know if you like it or not but this is paul's this is paul's answer to the question is god unfair is god unjust no because his name says it all he is who he is he shows mercy compassion to whomever he wants so verse 16 then so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, your, your effort, your striving, your accomplishment. It depends not on your willing or working, but on God who has mercy. Now, you can hear that in one of at least a couple of ways. You say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I like, wow, he's really grumpy and stingy. I'll be nice when I feel like it. I don't have to be nice to anybody I don't want to be nice to. You can hear it like that. Or you can hear it in the more positive and, I believe, more accurate way. I am God. I do not have to give people exactly what they deserve. I can show just as much mercy and compassion as I want. That's the message of the parable. I don't know if you remember this parable in Matthew chapter 20, where Jesus tells a story, it's a made-up story to, to teach a lesson, um, of a master who owns a vineyard, and he hires workers to uh, work in his vineyard throughout the day. And depending on the time when he called them, some got a whole day's work, some got a half day's work, and, and some even just worked just an hour, just at the end of the day. But when it came time, end of the day, time to pay. And the owner of the vineyard started with the last, the last person who got there who only worked an hour and he gave them a whole day's pay. And so those who, who were back in the line, who had worked all day, they're getting excited. Like, oh, the guys who worked an hour got a whole day's pay. What are we going to get? But he got to them and he, and he gave them a day's pay. And they didn't like it. That's not, that's not fair. That's not right. But here's how Jesus says, Matthew twenty thirteen to 15. But he, in the story, the master, replied to one of them, "'Friend, I am doing you no wrong. "'Did you not agree with me for a denarius?' "'Days pay. "'Take what belongs to you and go. "'I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. "'Am I not allowed to do what I choose "'with what belongs to me?' Or, do you begrudge my generosity? Two things there. Yes, the master, of course the master has every right to do whatever he wants with what is his, and he, And why would we begrudge his generosity, his mercy, his kindness? The master has absolute freedom to be generous whether or not it seems fair to you or anyone else. If God was strictly just and fair, he'd give everyone just what they deserve. Do you really want God to be absolutely fair? (laughs) Do, Do you really want that? And if this is the way that God is unjust, by offering mercy, by showing compassion, so be it. You go, God, with all the mercy and compassion, give it to just as many as you want to give it to. Let it let it be me. Now keep that keep that in mind for this next quotation uh, that appears in verse 17 comes originally from Exodus 9:16. And that, that would not be disturbing by itself, verse, uh, again, verse 17, except for the reminder in verse 18 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, says he has the right to do it. I will have mercy on those who have mercy, I'll harden those whom I harden, and Here's what we need to remember. If God, again, was completely just, he would have left Israel in her slavery. He would have left Pharaoh in his sin. Yes, he hardened Pharaoh in his sin, which is to say, so important, God did not take a morally neutral Pharaoh. Pharaoh was just innocent, morally neutral, or, or uh, even like, oh God, I want to love you, but oh nope, sorry, I'm going to harden you. That's not, that's not what happened. Pharaoh was not morally neutral. He was not uh, seeking God. God hardened Pharaoh in his sin, in his prior re- rebellion. Why? Verse 17 of Romans 9. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If you know the early book of Exodus, the early part, first part of the book of Exodus, it's a confrontation between Pharaoh, who thinks he's a god, who thinks he has absolute control over Israel, and confrontation between that king and the true king, between Pharaoh and Yahweh, who is God, who will destroy Pharaoh in order to deliver his people and make them his own. So God's not destroying Pharaoh just for, as a spectacle. He's not destroying Pharaoh just to show him who's boss, even, or to just uh, humble him. He's going to destroy Pharaoh in order to deliver his people from that bondage. So even as, even as Pharaoh, in that story, exercises his own will, Pharaoh exercises his own will, believing that he is resisting God. Believe, and even as he thinks his opposition to God is proof of his own strength, even then he's actually being raised up by God to escalate the confrontation so that when God ruins the oppressor and redeems the oppressed, the name of the Lord will be proclaimed in all the earth. The Lord, he is God. God puts evil in its place so that you might stand in awe of him. God puts evil in its place so that you might stand in awe of him. The most powerful, think think of this, this is still true, folks. The most powerful ruler who seems to be unchecked in his or her tyranny, God can do with him whatever he wants. God can ruin him or her. The, or the weak, the outcast, who seemed to be doomed, God can do with them whatever he wants. He can ruin redeem them he can do whatever he wants he's god now we're like okay you're answering you're answering questions paul but you're raising more questions and i'm not sure i'm comfortable with this yet if you're still uncomfortable with god's absolute freedom to be god he is he is god that it it, it seems and it seems like ah, his freedom seems to impinge on my freedom well Well, I guess we just got to keep reading, all right? And I I can't promise that you're going to get an answer that you like, but this is all I've got. The word here. This is what I got. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God... Desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy whom He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." As indeed he says in Hosea, the prophet, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, like Gomorrah. This is part four. Is God unloving? And the takeaway is going to be, God is not done saving all who are His. Wait and see more of His mercy. Verse 19 and the question has to do with judgment. If God can harden Pharaoh and presumably anyone else he wants, that's the implication, then how can God then turn around and condemn Pharaoh or anyone else for their sin? I mean, isn't Pharaoh doing exactly what God wants as he acts according to God's sovereign purpose and will? Now, folks, I'll just say, I have no... Agenda in trying to convince you of a certain position on God's absolute sovereignty. You don't have to buy into the view of any particular uh, pastor or theologian, but here's the deal. All of us have to deal with what the text says. <laughs> and uh, here, Paul has the perfect opportunity to say, No, 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 no. Like, he was like, Wait a minute. Who? Why does he still find fault? Who can resist God's will? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying that God's will is sovereign. <laughs> no. Yeah, we all have free will. That's, that's how we're... Like, no. He could have said that. Pharaoh, he he say Pharaoh had free will. That was the problem. God's not in absolute control. He doesn't say that. What, what does Paul do? He gives us something of a non-answer. Not because he's, I, I, because I, I think, I don't think he's avoiding the question or the answer, but apparently we've hit the ceiling of what can be explained. We've hit the ceiling. According to according to verses 19 and 20, you just have to give some more thought to this uh, or listen to this sermon again later, see if you can track with me. Uh, 19 and 20, the basic tension, the mystery that we cannot comprehend. Where, does, where do we get that finally Paul says, you know what? Wait, we, we, I can't explain any further. It's not, the basic tension is not God's sovereignty versus man's free will, human free will. That's not it. The seeming paradox, the tension that we have to live with is God is sovereign and humans are still responsible for their sin. That's the mystery. That's the tension. That's the like, pff, I can't, I can't, can't explain. How can that be? What, that's not right. Like, I, who, are, who are you? Talk back to God. I'm I'm happy to talk more about that next Sunday morning in the Sunday school class if you want to press into that further. But here's the deal. That's that's where where Paul leaves us. That's where he stops and says, okay, no more questions. Who are you to tell God what he can't do? He's the potter. We're the clay. What if, he says, what if God puts up with his creatures that are doomed to destruction so that bigger purpose here." He can show His glory to those who are destined for mercy. And just like in Exodus, God's primary aim is not to send Pharaoh to hell. His aim is to make known the riches of His glory to vessels of mercy prepared for glory. He wants His name to be known in all the earth. There is a wideness to God's mercy. He wants everybody to know that He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the Protector. He is the... Defeater of the oppressor, and he is the deliverer of the oppressed who look to him in faith. So, for all the questions that we might have about this passage, how God works—is this—is this saying here that he makes he makes some people only to throw them into hell, or is he in Paul intentionally stopping just short of that when he says, "What if"? What if this is what God does? I mean, doesn't he have the right? He, he, what I think is clear, what I think is emphasized is this. Even as we today, just like Paul and his readers back then, we're struggling with the same questions. The questions you're like, oh, this, is, this doesn't sit, this sits a little funny with me. Folks, we're, we're, this is the same questions they're dealing with. Paul recognizes it. He's He's walking us through this here. We're wrestling with the reality that not all will be saved, even those we love. Can, can we still believe that God is good, that he is not unloving, that he is God? And, and, and here's the thing. This passage uh, ends, or what I've read, uh, verses 24 to 29, which we will come back to much more next week. We, we see his love. If you're like, but, but people are going to hell. But do you see his love? Do you see it? We'll see it also in the rest of chapter 9 and 10 and 11 that this, what we're looking at today, is not the whole picture, it's not the end of the story. God has expanded the scope of his salvation to reach the Gentiles, to reach the ends of the earth, that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth, and his love is being multiplied exponentially. It's not being reduced as he goes to people who had been said, you are not my people. And he says, no, no, you are my people to those who who's, who were not his beloved, who had been his enemies. He says, no, no, you're mine. You're, you will be my son. You, you will be called sons of the living God. You are sons and heirs. You're part of this family. That, that is not a God who's like, ah, I don't want to show mercy. This is a God who is continually showing more and more greater and greater mercy to greater and greater lengths around the world through history and yes, there are people who are tying and going to hell and I, I can explain all of the ways that that all works together but at some point you just you hit the ceiling of what I can explain what we can understand and we're trusting God that his mercy is still reaching, still moving still going out no matter what we see now no matter what we wish God would do, the thing of it is, God is not done saving all who are His. Wait and see more of His mercy. That was true for the Jews who were reading this. It may be true for your husband or wife, your son or daughter, for which your heart is grieved, unceasing anguish, Your your only prayer is that they might be saved. He's got more that he's doing with the Jews. He's got more that he's doing perhaps with your family. I can't, I can't. I can't say definitively. I'm just saying, wait and see more of his mercy. The bigger picture, the whole story is not about a God who is grumpy or stingy when it comes to his mercy, or a God who is capricious and arbitrary uh, with his love, like, yeah, I will love, uh, uh, love you, not you, I love you, not you. That's not the picture. But a God who is so great, so sovereign, that no one, certainly not his creatures like you and me, can tell him what he can and can't do, can tell him that he owes us his mercy and grace. Folks, if he owed it to us, it wouldn't be mercy and grace. If he gave us what he owed us, what we deserve, you don't want that. But God, if God is working in and through all things, even through the wicked and the rebellious, to bring more and more and more and more into the riches of his glory, he's he's seeking out more and more and more objects of his mercy. And as we get further into, as we get into chapter 10, We'll see that one practical application of this is that we must. Then we must take the good news of Christ to all people, to all places around the world. So this is not a. This message this morning does not leave us with hopelessness, ambivalence. Well, I guess what's, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. God's going to do what God's going to do. God's going to save who God's going to save. He's going to send to hell who's going to send to hell. No, like. So, with the good news, with the, with the promise of His mercy that is extending out more and more, He wants to make His name known, then go. Go with the good news and just see, just see His mercy at work. For now, for now, it just, and I mean, this end of this sermon, the end of this, this passage we've looked at this morning, just, I know we have questions. I know we'd like more answers. You won't get all the answers to all the questions you have about God but do but do what he said he wants to see happen behold his glory bask in his mercy live humble grateful missional lives that's what we have here the lord he is god let's pray Oh, Father, I trust, I have been trusting, I am trusting now that um, you will work through your word. The word that you gave, the word that you breathed out, you will breathe into us, you will illuminate, give us understanding by your spirit that you will give us patience for the things that we think we know and the, the things that we'd like to know, that you grant us the gift of faith, trust, rest, with every expectation, not only that you are and will keep your promises, but every expectation that we're going to see more of your mercy as it plays out in this world. God, do that through us. Do that in us. Do it through us. Make your mercy known your name known, your power and glory known. We pray in Jesus' name.